just a little note before this episode. While I'm really happy with the conversations that we had, and I think that there's a lot of good content in this episode that's worth listening to, unfortunately, our sound had issues on both my end and their end, and unfortunately, our recording solution also had a lot of lag as a result of unfortunate internet connections and international stuff. So please bear in mind, the audio isn't quite as strong as we'd like, but we really hope that you enjoy it. And with that, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan, and we're here to talk about something a little different than usual, the depictions of queer male bodies in games. We'll be using five games to discuss this, but before we get into that, we have a guest today. Jeremy, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I am a freelance games critic who writes basically all over for whoever will take me. I've been writing for about 10 years now. I examine mechanics and themes of games. And two years ago, I started looking at queer theory in games because that's when I came out of the closet. So this is a topic that I'm very versed in at this point. Mm, I've been following your work since um, the piece you wrote for Unwinnable about mid-last year, focusing on the homoeroticism of Contra and Altered Beast. Yes. And you've been writing about this topic for a while now, and it's been a really interesting focus of yours that I've really enjoyed like following over the last year or so since I discovered that. And so I'm really happy to have you on the show. Happy to be here. So since we're going to be talking about queer male bodies, there's going to be some discussion of sex, sexuality, things like that, that maybe inappropriate for a young audience or some people might not be super comfortable with if so this is your warning from here on out we'll be talking rather freely and with that let's talk about our first game Dragon Age 2 is a 2011 Bioware RPG published by EA, designed by Mike Laidlaw and written by David Gaidler. So Dragon Age 2 continues with Bioware's focus on romances that have been in Mass Effect 1 and Dragon Age 1, and to some extent in their Baldur's Gate and Knights of the Old Republic games, and opens them up compared to previous games by having four of the main campaign romance options being bisexual, which is rather unique for Bioware's games up to that point. The main gameplay focuses around the player character Hawk and the goings-ons of the city Kirkwall over an extended period of time. At the time, it wasn't especially regarded, although many still champion it today for its characters and its very focused scope. So Dragon Age is on this list because, to me at least, it's sort of an early important way in which you could play an actually LGBT character which there hadn't been a lot of opportunities for that, and especially not for it to be just so present in things. What was your experience with Dragon Age 2 in this regard? The first Dragon Age was, um, they included queer relationships in that as well, but it was dependent on the character. In Dragon Age 2, you had, everybody was bisexual, basically. And that is, it took all the strengths of Dragon Age for exploring yourself as a as a queer person and transplanted it into 
uh, shell where anything goes, basically. And whatever you're comfortable with, you can do. And that that's really important when you're exploring and discovering yourself and basically taking the temperature of who you are. Because role-playing is a very powerful um, tool when it comes to self-actualization and self-image. Mm, that's right. Gay Gamer, the old website, they had a lot of articles about people sort of exploring themselves and discovering like, oh, I'm actually trans, oh, I'm actually this, I'm actually that, through just experimenting with RPGs over a long period of time. And while, yeah, other games had some options, this is, I think, fairly distinctive for having it sort of be the default that you can explore what you like. There was a bit of flack this game got from both sides, I think, when it came out in that some people felt like it was too much having everyone be player sexual to some extent. Um, where do you stand on that? Well, it is not, okay, it's not very realistic that everybody is bisexual, obviously. This isn't a real world. This is a fantasy world in a game. So designing with that mind is honestly ideal. And like, yeah. I think it's interesting to contrast this a little bit with Inquisition, which I haven't played as much of, but there's a character in that who is exclusively gay i believe and he um has that as like a part of his backstory and i think it's interesting having that distinction to med dragon to everyone's just whatever you want them to be dragon age 2 sorry where everyone's whatever you want them to be yeah and um like it if you think of this as like dipping your toe into figuring out who you are as a gay person a bi person pan person then um it makes sense that this would this would help you start to figure things out with yourself if you're like right at the beginning of your journey and you're not necessarily out of the closet and you're still figuring out if you really are gay or bi or whatever then this is actually a really useful tool to confirm some things with yourself and to sort of um play a role before you actually inhabit that role definitely and for me like dragon age 2 is really important because it was the first game i played where i could be a gay character like this was my romance with anders was the first time digital me could express that side of me and i hadn't been out for a long time when this had come out as well so it's early in my young queer life. The fact that it includes like sex scenes, a very PG-13 sex scenes, mind you, is not, they're not the best ones, but as, as like a, a starting point to explore yourself, they're actually um, pretty useful. And I remember I would, uh, I would um, like even in the original Dragon Age, when I was playing as a dwarf, I would go to the brothel and... Um, just to see what it was like, because I was still, I was curious, because I, I would, I, not only was I in the midst of the closet and homophobia, I was very much sex-phobic, sex and, like, those scenes are very, like, they're, they're, if you, like I said, it's a di dipping your toe into the pool, and um, they're useful for that. Yeah, it's a starting point. It's your, you know, I'm not sure if I'm gay or not starter pack. Not right. sort of. Yeah, and I want to stress that this is. I'm not. Which is saying a terrible way that, to phrase it, really. Uh, yeah, I want. I want to stress that I'm not saying that you use these games as your entire exploration of self because that's obviously no. That's obviously yeah, not. But it's right. a starting point. Like, oh, you're playing this game. You're playing this game. You see this option. You're like, ah, oh, that feels right. Let's give it a whirl. And I think there's something to be said about, now that I think about it, Dragon Age, compared to many of the games we're going to talk about, is a popular mainstream thing. Like, I think very few people would dip into some of the later games we're going to talk about, like Tusks, 
unknowingly. Whereas in Dragon Age 2, you might see the option to flirt with Anders and be like, oh yeah, I'll pick that. That seems fun. And there's sort of that ability to just run into it and dip your toes into it without having to have explicitly sought it out that I think is powerful. Right. And one other, one last thing about Dragon Age that's I think is important is you can make, um, you can role play however you want. Like you can make the character your own. You can make them your idealized self. And this is, that's basically what your exploration is. You're trying to find out who you are, ideally, if there were no barriers. And that's really important that you can like project yourself into that world that way. And I think that's a good point to transition into our next game, which in many ways is about inhabiting what might be considered a somewhat idealized body. Rise from your grave. Altered Beast is a 1988 2D beat-em-up for the arcade developed and published by Sega and designed by Makoto Ichiya. At this point, the game is probably most known in its Mega Drive form, which is very similar to the arcade version, but for a game that's primarily about its visual and sound design, it's definitely worth having a look at the arcade version if you haven't already. So the game's general pretense is that you are a statue uh, made alive by Zeus going on a quest to save Athena, although I don't think Athena should need saving, honestly, but anyway, um, along the way in these adventures, you find power-ups that will strip you of your clothes and make you more buff until you shed all your clothes and become an animal. Mechanically, this game is mostly auto-scrolling beat-em-up levels, um, where players use a simple assortment of punches and kicks and jumps to get to the boss, defeat the boss, and move on to the next level. So this is a really short, sweet little arcade game that was the focus point to the article I originally found you, so... I'll let you start elaborating if you want. Right, so that article was talking about how these classic games that are based on like different things, like Contra was based on Rambo, and there's very homoerotic imagery associated with that comparison. With Altered Beast, it's even more pronounced because you do start off as kind of a small, smaller character, so you're not very muscular in the start. You're within the realms of normal, mortal muscular. Yes, as you get power-ups, you start to get buffer and buffer, until you finally transform into a animal of whatever that stage is. Now, the the meme is the Wolfman, because you get that's the first and last stage. Yeah, and starts with the Wolfman, you've got, what is it, wolf, dragon, bear tiger and wolf again i think of the full collection yes yes and whilst we say becoming animal you're really becoming like an anthropomorphized version of the animal that is also like very very buff yes and traditionally muscular bodies are very homoerotic if if you think of japanese manga there are two types of gay japanese manga there's yaoi, which is like boy love, um, like with very skinny bodies, and very twinky. Um, and then there's a... And large hands. Yes, and large hands. And then there's bara, which is the one that's um, more written by gay people for gay people. Gay men for gay men. And... Yaoi is really written for for women by women. And it's a very like different... We're not going to get too much into it, but like it's a very a different target audience and different thing. 
Barrow is, yeah, much, much more foreign by gay men. Although, not that we need to get too much into this, but this is not a term that is actually liked very much in Japan, butter. Um, it's usually like G-comic or something here. But anyway, that's not the main point of this discussion. Continue, sorry. Right, so it's a very masculine quality to be like buff or even just big and ha- have a lot of body to display. And it's like the classical homoerotic imagery and as you see this in the game you start to see like an idealized version of maybe yourself maybe someone you actually would like to be with as a fantasy and you start to realize that maybe you're into it and another big aspect of this is transformation within at least the Japanese gay community fairy is like a very common community for people to be involved in And I think there's always an aspect with the fairy subculture of like transforming into like your idealized self that is really important to that community in a lot of ways. And like communicating what you really are is easier through these other forms sometimes than perhaps your real body might be. Yes. And the idea that you're transforming into something else, it's more that you're transforming into who you really are inside. And yes. this, this is closer to who you are meant to be or who you are, who you have being honest about your desires and not necessarily like, oh, you're, I'm meant to be a, a buff wolf man. No, it's that you're, you're meant to be, um, you're meant to be a gay man. And there's nothing wrong with that. Although, to be honest, I think we're all meant to be buff wolf men. I think that's really the lesson to take away from Altered Beast. <laughs> I agree. More seriously, though, this is probably an ideal segue unless you've got something to add into our next game. All right. Which is all about becoming what you really are, in a sense. Strange Flesh is a free beat-em-up game by Greatest Bear Studios that was released, I think, in 2018. It's not exactly clear from a lot of materials online. The game is about an average Joe coming to your bar, Strange Flesh, and as the barkeeper, entering his mind and fighting through it and his figments and imagination and subconscious. And the deeper you get, the more explicit and wilder it becomes. And the gameplay itself is a fairly simple brawler, not too unlike um, Streets of Rage or something like that. So in many ways, this is a very neat transition from Altered Beast, which is a brawler that is more explicitly about these sorts of themes. Where Altered Beast is symbolically discovering who you are, Strange Flesh is taking it very literally. You basically dominate this schmo off the street, as the barkeep, as you corrupt him, basically when you go into his mind, you're fighting incarnations of him, and there's lots of him. And as you do, the finishing moves are actually sexual acts, and they start... Fairly tame. Well... I mean, tame in the context of where it ends up. <laughs> yes. So it starts with oral, and then it gets gradually more and more explicit until, like, I think the very last one is you you take your cigar and blow some smoke and make a copy of yourself and basically spit roast the subject. Yeah, that's the last one, I think. So yeah, it's a bit, it's, you know, starts off with um, getting him off with your foot and then ends with that. So, you know, a big spectrum. Right, yes. But yeah, there are what, um, five or six different enemy types in total? Yes, and they get progressively more and more, um, actually I should say less and less 
restrained and um there's a theme of they become more like a punk rocker if you take all the enemies side by side it's like a progression from that schmo being all like in a dress shirt and a tie and it goes all the way to like a buff punk rocker the later levels see him basically all the all his incarnations making out with each other as as he gets freer and freer in his mind yeah and like this goes from just like the starting levels like fairly tame environments and then at the end you're in like a big sort of sexy nightclub, which a lot of his depictions in the background doing that stuff, which like it's a very it's a very well crafted game in that sense. Like it's got a good a simple message it's going for, and it really shoots for it through its aesthetic design in a way that I don't think I see a lot in free games, especially. Like this is a lot of very good art and animation that's done to pull this off. Yes, and I think the big thing is the endings. Because there's three different endings. They spell out the three different fates of this poor repressed guy. And that is the Dominus ending, where he is basically turned into a sex slave for the bar. Although a willing sex slave who is happy. And the second ending is the corruption ending, where he actually turns into the idealized version of himself and becomes a punk rock performer for the bar while getting all kinds of male groupies and then the last ending which is the boyfriend ending the quote-unquote best ending where he is able to actually leave the bar of his own free will because the bartender decides not to strip him of his will but it's his repression is broken and he actually gets into a healthy relationship with another man and is able to pursue his passions and basically have a healthier more authentic life and I think those three endings are very interesting because while the boyfriend is like the quote-unquote best ending because it's the hardest to get, the other two endings aren't necessarily portrayed as bad. They're just different facets of what's inside and things that are coming out as he gets more comfortable with himself. And I think that's a really important balance that this rides is it's using a lot of like language that I think people would maybe construct as being maybe not ideal, like domination and corruption are the two big words of this game. But the endings that those have are like not necessarily negative for him, as you say. And even in the boyfriend ending, they make a comment in that that like he still has like this strong wild side that the beat em up section implied that he does have. So it's not even just like, a, oh, I'm just a good regular person now. It's like still he's got a lot of these things that have been hinted at through the gameplay previously. Yes, and I do want to point out that some might question the uh, levels of consent in this, as after all, you're going into some guy's mind seemingly without his permission and basically doing spectacular. But this is a fantasy, and this is a fantasy game, and this the person playing is you, and you're playing for a reason, and you're you're willfully entering into this, and. I like to think of it mostly as an allegorical exercise, really. Yeah, like there is a lot of weirdness going on, but it is ultimately about like someone coming in to like help reveal to you what you really are in a sense almost. Yeah, and uh, I think that speaks to how so many gay men are repressed and in like denying themselves and this this is a journey that people are making and this illustrates that i believe very well definitely and i think like the use of yet yeah, language corruption domination like i think in the west at least like around when i was growing up and such when you do look up lgbt things there is obviously like a lot of very positive stuff but 
in more conservative situations, the language isn't always as positive as maybe it needs to be. And there's something that makes it difficult to embrace uh, an identity that is associated with some of these negative terms. But here you see like someone coming out from these endings with something positive to them at least. Yeah, and these are very sexually charged terms, and they have their roots in the BDSM community and the like, the leather community and all that. So it's it's very much a part of gay culture as far as the sexual side goes. And I guess is there anything more you have to add about this? Mm, I think that's a bit. I think that's it. Then with that, let's move on to our next game that I don't really have a good segue for. Our next game is Tokyo After School Summoners. It's a 2016 gacha RPG developed by Life Wonders, which is operated by the Dojin Circle, the Japanese term often used for small independent developers and artists called Yojo Hanteki Seikatsu. Mechanically, the game plays like many gacha games, with a focus on collecting and upgrading characters while progressing through a story that in many ways serves to introduce new characters to collect through the gacha. Unique to Tokyo After School Summoners, though, is that it is targeting an LGBT audience, mostly a male LGBT audience, but it does have other sexualities and such depicted. And the company uses its origins as a doujin circle to bring in a lot of popular gay artists. So this is your first time, I think, dealing with this game. What was your experience with it in that short time? Well, a segue from Strange Flesh, which was about fulfilling sexual fantasies and unrepressing yourself. I think Tokyo After School Summoners is actually very useful as a fantasy where you still have the desirable bodies that you would see in homoerotic media. There are a good diversity of them in this one, it should be said. But what's striking to me about this game is that it's got very simple dialogue options occasionally where you can like say a line to a character and you can choose from like one of three. One of them is very explicit and would be inappropriate for normal conversation, but it's an environment where you can have a fantasy about talking to people like that and there's not really... I don't think there's a downside to doing that unless I'm missing something, but... Not really, no. So, like, you can develop romantic bonds with characters that you collect, but developing those bonds is something that happens outside of the main story. So those main story choices are all just for the dialogue that you get to see. You can replay them later if you want to choose different options even. And there's no branching narrative or anything like that. So to me, like what makes Tokyo After School Summoners a really interesting game for the discussion we're having is that gacha games are ultimately about creating characters that people want enough that they would be willing to spend hundreds of dollars for them and tokyo after school summoners is on the expensive side for gacha um i don't know what the u.s prices convert into but usually in gacha games a set of 10 draws or getting 10 characters would cost you about 3,000 yen, which is about 30 USD usually. In Tokyo After School Summoners, that's like 50 USD or like 5,000 yen. So it's a bit expensive compared to everything else. But 
the body types are a really important point. There's a lot of diversity in them. And so a lot of different physical physicalities get to be portrayed and viewed as being sexy, which I don't think you see that much in a lot of traditional media or a lot of other games. Even more heterosexually targeted gotcha games tend to have fairly limited body types in comparison. Like Fire Emblem Heroes, for instance, has some muscle men, but like it's mostly fairly similarly bodied people. Yeah, and um, like even... Even the, a lot of the things that people in our sphere right now, like Hades is the big game, and there are a lot of characters that people are very thirsty for in that game, but all the body types are pretty much the same. Like, they're all muscular, and there's there's not really a fat character, there's not really a bulky character. They're all, like, ripped, and that's fine, but there are more bodies out there than that. Yeah, and in this you've got a lot of fat characters. Like, the very first character that you can be thirsty for, basically, in the game is Fat Guy. I think the first opening, like, sexy thing you can ask him is, what is your waist size, basically? Just, like, an interesting way to start a friendship. Not gonna critique their choices, but I wouldn't start like that. Anyway, um... Like, you have a lot of, yeah, very different physicalities, a lot of fat characters, and a lot of different ways of being fat as well, ranging from, like, just, you know, very cuddly to more of sort of a muscle chub and all sorts of bits and pieces, which even in games that do have some fat characters, there's more diversity within that spectrum even than other things. As much as we talk about idealized selves and fantasies and all that, it's still important to acknowledge that the world is more made up of more bodies than just the one. And also, like, what the ideal is, is not the same for everyone. Correct. Like, all of the bodies in this game are idealized bodies, but they're just not the same ideal, which I think is really important as a distinction. Yeah, some some men want to um, be the, the bear archetype, which with, like, the belly and the uh, body hair and all that, and that's valid. Yeah, and I think also compared to other gacha games, like we mentioned, usually in the dialect choices, you can choose a horny response. A lot of other gacha games are like, I don't want to say subtly horny because that's incorrect, but they definitely don't directly state that sort of intention with them. Like Grand Blue Fantasy, Freight Grand Order, a lot of fans have made a lot of sexy content. A lot of the characters are fairly sexy to many people. But the games never, like, outright say we're appealing to that. Whereas this is, from the get-go, made by a doujin circle that specialized in erotic content, primarily, and has a lot of artists that also worked in that field. Yeah, and I think it's um, very apparent with some of the designs. Like, uh, two of the teachers you meet when you get to the school (laughs) are um, basically dressed in, like, thongs and a loose fitting jacket and nothing else i mean that's typical school wear in some (laughs) places probably that's right it's very much like clear that that's its origins i guess um so tokyo after school summoners is in many ways a very idealized collection of bodies and people for a variety of ideals I think our next game is maybe a much more realistic collection of bodies even if some of them might fit some ideals
Tusks is a still-in-development dating sim by Mitch Alexander, originally starting in 2015. Not only is it about interacting with orcs as romantic interests, but also an increasingly expansive narrative exploring outsider status, game and fantasy tropes, and identity. It's about a band of orcs meeting at a large orcish event, Ua, and then traveling together. It's got a fairly simple structure. Throughout the day, you journey through the land, run into events and other people, and then at night, you get a chance to know the orcs better in one-on-one interaction. Yeah, so I think if we're talking about these five games as sort of a journey, this is where everything comes together. Like, Tusks is all about not only knowing yourself, but knowing how you relate to other people in this role. And I think it's very striking that Tusks is about orcs, because traditionally orcs are portrayed as very evil inherently, and that's very problematic. But also that's sort of how gay men have been treated in the past, like we're seen as predators. Yes, traditionally, like in a lot of media, gay men are depicted as like monsters or not explicitly so, but many like monsters and villains are coded with um, queer tropes and things. And so, yeah, there's a lot of kinship between like gay men and monsters in a lot of things. The other striking thing about this is uh, the characters you interact with have a certain amount of agency as or at least more than you would have in a different game. Um, it's really striking when you boot up the game, the autonomous NPC function is brought up in a text box and asked, do you want to enable this? Sometimes this means that NPCs will override your choices or cause what you want to happen to not happen. And that's really bold in a lot of the game in a lot of dating games and even in a lot of the games we've talked about so far, If you want something to happen, it generally happens if it can. Here, there's a lot of chance for you wanting something to happen that then does not, which I think is really important in a game about relationships. You don't necessarily end up with someone in this game. You don't even get to know everybody intimately. You get to know a handful of people on your journey because you eventually run out of time. It's not necessarily going to be like a lasting traditional relationship. Like traditional relationships aren't really the focus of this game because there's a there's a polycule in fact in this game. Mm, the three chieftains, right? Two of the chieftains who are each in love and in a relationship with a third one. And I think that's really important because in queer culture, there are more relationship types than just the normal heterosexual, monogamous, settle down, have kids, all that. Queer relationships can be very messy is not quite the right word. It's more like they're... Varied. (laughs) Varied, yeah. And there's, there's all kinds of different relationships we have with each other and interactions. And it's nice to have a game acknowledge that. Yeah, and like every character in the cast basically has a very different attitude to how long it takes to warm up to someone. So there's the red sort of boorish-like character, Sithig, who is all about like sensual pleasures whether it be like food alcohol or sex and he's like very immediate if you want to do things you can have fun but there's the um what do you call it selkie the water-based orcs 
um, which they take like a little more time to warm up to you. You can ask to sleep together and they'll be like, actually, I'm not ready yet, but maybe after a bit more time. And yeah, everyone has like this very different attitude to sex, which is much more like how real people are. Yes. Because in these sorts of games, if you get the option of, do you want to sleep with me? Usually the game only gives you that option when you can do that. Yeah, too often relationships are treated as a quest line where the ultimate reward is the sex scene. And that's not how actual relationships work at all. There's the there's the temporary shit, two ships passing in the night relationships. There's the lasting relation, loving relationship with someone. There's the polycules that are like very, um, very loving and inclusive. And on top of all that, not only do we have like a more sort of human-like, even though that's not the right word, and the orcs even critique this use of language in the game, even like compared to the more human relationships, we also see just more lived-in bodies. Like these characters are many around, many are damaged, many have stretch marks. Like there are lots of imperfections to these bodies that make them much more lived-in. It sounds like a terrible expression now that I say it out loud. Yeah, I want to give a special shout out to Air, who is the only human that you can get to know in this game, and I believe represents gamer expectations when it comes to relationships and sex and how they've been conditioned to treat it as like something they're entitled to, a reward, something where they are the center of the universe. And that's just that's just not how people are. And that's not how the orcs are. And Air very quickly realizes that. Aid, sorry, Aid. I don't know why I'm saying Air. <laughs> Air, Aid. You got two of the three letters right. That's like <laughs> a pass mark. Yeah, Aid is um, a researcher into orc life in theory is the setup. And he doesn't seem to know that much to some extent when you actually start talking to him about these things. Which is interesting because you do have another scholar in the group, um, Brockin. I think that's how we say his name, Brockin, who is also a scholar about Orkish life, but an Orkish one. And I wish they had a little more interaction because a big part of this game, despite us focusing on the relationships, is this idea of Orkish culture and Orkish life and how people view Orcs as a general thing like when we talk about this game and a lot of the media coverage for it it's very much a oh sexy orcs go sleep with them have fun and like that's fun to read and quick news story about but the actual game is much more interested in not just that but also exploring these themes of this culture it's striking that there are moments when you are really close with an orc that they will strip for you it's not treated as like titillating or whatever it's more like an acknowledgement that you've gained some level of intimacy with this character and it also represents having a certain amount of comfort with yourself in regard to how you interact with others like being comfortable in your own skin outside and how that interacts with others and even if you are an outsider you still have to live in the worlds so this is showing with examinations into agency and acceptance and all that good stuff and unless you got something to add i think we'll go into the ending Okay, and with that, let's look back on what we've talked about so far. Right, so 
If you want to try any of these games, or even if you've already played them, but never looked at them through a queer lens, then I would encourage you to go back and I believe that Tusks is the the friendliest and gentlest as long as you're comfortable with with the themes and you can also turn off nudity so if that's a concern that is acceptable if you wanted to check out strange flesh i would caution it does it does have very charged imagery and language and the the criticisms of it having consent issues that's absolutely a valid view but like i said it's a i view it as a allegorical um game and if you view it through that lens i think you'll get a lot out of it if provided you're comfortable with this very sexual stuff um everything else i believe is viewable from afar very well if you although if if you want to check out Tokyo After School Summoners, that is available in English on the App Store. It's just, it's worth playing, even if it's just the intro bits, because the actual game itself isn't super great. No, it's really not. I wish... I love this studio. They've done a lot of really cool things, but I never quite gel with the actual game parts of what they do, unfortunately. Yeah, if you want to dip your toe in, like, Dragon Age is always there and like altered beast you can you can get what what i've been saying about it out of a playthrough because it it really is a progression as you play and just keep those things in mind as you play and um you can you can view a lot of games through a queer lens and that's what i'll end on yeah and so coincidentally like we organized this podcast to happen and in between that space, it looks like you're going to be having your own podcast soon. Do you want to talk about what that will be sort of looking at and a bit more details to our listeners about that? Right. So this podcast is is going to be called Games Are Queer, and it's going to basically be like an interview series where I will have on guests that are prominent queer figures in gaming, whether they be journalists, critics, streamers, devs anything like that. We'll just be um, discussing like how their queerness comes into play in their work, how they view queerness in games, stuff like that. And it's basically just going to highlight all the corners where you can find queer creators because, hey, we're everywhere. And we're, ju- we're just going to point you to uh, some of those corners. And I'm really excited to listen to that. Do you know approximately when your first episode should be coming out? I know that this is a bit earlier than that release date, but... So by the time this show goes live, it should be um, maybe shortly after that, I would, I think. So you won't have to wait long to hear. Great. And we'll share it on our Twitter accounts and social media as well, because we're really excited to see, for our audience to hear what you've been making. And on that note, you also do writing. Um, would you like to plug one of your recent written pieces? Okay, yeah. So I recently wrote a piece for uh, a site called No Escape uh, about Paradise Killer and how it um, sort of is a big metaphor for the harmful effects of capitalism and all that. And coincidentally, the the head of that website is going to be my first guest on my podcast. And I also have a couple of very gay articles coming out for a couple of other websites. At least one of them should be live by the time this episode goes live. So look forward to that. 
And where can people find you online if they want to follow your own work and talk to you about some of the ideas presented today and such? My Twitter is at Jeremy underscore writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. And as usual, you can also talk with us on the show at Platt and Pitt, or you can find us on Facebook. Our website has an email form you can also send messages to. And if they're topics relevant to today's episode, I'll pass on those messages to Jeremy and potentially get them answered through emails or Twitter or what have you. And I think with that, we're ready to finish for the episode. At the end of this episode, there'll be a short little teaser for my appearance on Doors and Dungeons, the second part of our Famicom Disk System discussion over on their feed. And with that, thank you for listening. And thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today for doing something a little bit different to our usual topic. Thank you for having me. So let's get this started. So let's load up I Senshi Nicole Tom. All right. A button, go! Doesn't make any noise at first. So. Ah, well. So yeah, you, you both had mentioned with I Senshi Nicole that it feels to you like a Konami game. As someone who didn't play Konami games of the NES era, why does this make you think Konami? Wait, the different game felt like Konami game. Well, because this is a Konami this, game. This is like Konami game <laughs> because it is a Konami game. Sorry. Okay. I'm thinking about a different game that you both mentioned felt like one. Uh, that was Murasame Joe. Ah, like sorry. Game. Uh, yeah. And Murasame Joe, since it is a Famicom Disk System game, will mention it. Um, it does feel like a Konami game because it feels very much like Goemon. Ah, I see. Ah, uh, yeah, I could see that. So, I sent you Nicole. Um, it, it feels very Konami, yes. Mm. Uh, yeah, so um, this opening is really cute. There's, like, the featured land Golden Gate Bridge. It's very, you know, like a vaporwave color scheme. And then, you know, our hero Nicole with his lovely cute girlfriend, whose name I don't know, uh, both have pink hair and blue jumpsuits, um, are standing on the side of the bridge when this alien brain thing shows up and throws her in a bubble and runs away. And then Nicole says, Oh, my God! In two different phrases. Oh! Exclamation point. My God! No space. No space. If you enjoyed that, please head over to Doors and Dungeons, where you can find the full episode. And with that, thank you for listening.